Hey guys, you're listening to episode 14 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. On this episode, we're going to be talking about tithing and how that fits into life with the Finish Line. Stay tuned to hear our thoughts. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. My name is Keelan Hobelman and I'm here with my co-host and brother Cody. Today we have another Q&A episode where we try to answer questions from our community of listeners about setting a financial finish line. Today we'll be tackling the question, how does tithing work if I have a financial finish line? Most of us are at least familiar with the idea of tithing, giving 10% of our income to our local church, but what is the biblical basis for tithing? And what does it look like for somebody with a financial finish line? We'll be tackling these questions and many more related to tithing. But before we get started, I just wanted to mention our Finish Line Sprints. If you've been enjoying this podcast and feel ready to dive deeper, then you should join or even start your own sprint. A sprint is a guided program for small groups meant to lead you through the overarching biblical themes related to wealth and money. Over eight weeks, you'll get to explore the restored freedom and purpose that comes with choosing a financial finish line. The Sprint Guide is completely free and available on our website at finishlinepledge.com sprint. Sprints are also completely self-led, so you don't need a trained leader or somebody who's been through the program before. All you need are a couple friends to get started. So check it out and get a group together today. All right, let's get to the show. All right, Cody, good to be here with you. I think we got an interesting question for today and one that comes up all the time when we start talking about money in the Bible, and that is about tithing. Specifically, we're going to be talking today about how tithing fits into the idea of a finish line. So there's a lot to break down here, and I think it'd be helpful to break it into three main categories. First, what's the biblical basis of tithing? Where does that idea come from in the first place? Second, are we called to tithe as Christians? And then finally, what does that actually look like for somebody living with a financial finish line? Starting with that first section, do you think you can give us a little bit of background about what the Bible actually says about tithing and and how that idea came about in the first place? Yeah, like you said, tithing is probably something that a lot of people have heard of if they don't practice it themselves. It's simply the process of giving 10% of your income to your local church. When we dive into the Old Testament, we see that the ancient Israelites offered 10% of all their crops, their produce, and their livestock to the Lord. And that word tithe literally means tenth in Hebrew. In Leviticus 27, it actually lays out the basic framework for that tithe. It says, every tithe of that land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. So today, in modern times, this looks more like giving 10% of our income. It's primarily a money-based system, and Christians give that 10% to their local church. But for many people who have been led to establishing a financial finish line, tithing may already be part of their normal giving process. But I found it really interesting as we started researching tithing, I learned a lot There was pieces that I had missed in the Old Testament, and can you just walk us through, there were actually multiple types of tithes that we see in the Old Testament? 
Yeah, I found it interesting as we were looking into things. There are a number of places in Scripture that talk about actually a couple different types of tithes. And a number of scholars would say when you add those different types of tithes together, you get a number closer to 23% of the crops and herds and, and income, basically, of the Israelites. And so the first type of tithe is from Numbers chapter 18, and that's the general tithe. It's paid to the Levites to fund the basically the government and to support the Levite tribe among the ancient Israelites. So, you know, the Israelites were broken into 12 tribes, and one of those tribes, the Levites, was set aside by God to carry out the functions of the temple, all the priestly functions. And so, they weren't farming and producing their own crops and herds and supporting themselves. And so the way the structure of the ancient Israelites worked is the other remaining 11 tribes would tithe 10% of everything that they produced in order to support that 12th tribe, the Levites, in order to carry out their temple duties. There's a second type of tithe mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 14, which is the worship tithe used for actually carrying out the normal celebration of convocations and the practices of the temple itself. And so while the first one was supporting the Levites, the second one was to actually carry out the functions of the temple, which involved lots of sacrifices, etc. The third type of tithe is mentioned right after that in the same chapter, sometimes referred to as the welfare tithe. And that was a tithe that actually occurred every three years where people would offer an additional tithe to support individuals in need, like orphans, widows, or uh, strangers, foreigners that were living with the Israelites and didn't have land of their own. And so when you take these three together, 10% plus 10% plus 10% every three years, or three and a third percent, then you get that 23%. And so some people will say, if we really were to go by the, the true ancient Hebrew scripture, then we should be doing something closer to 23%. Right. I find it so interesting that people have really researched this stuff, and it seemed to be that there was a 49-year cycle, and and like you said, there were different tithes and different intervals, and uh, it was far more complex than I had ever realized. And the simple, just give 10% of your income to your local church, didn't quite give all the context for the biblical basis of tithing, at least in the Old Testament. Yeah, and so that brings up, I think, the natural next question of, what does that mean for us as Christians in 2021? Are we called to tithe? Should we be giving 10%? Should we be giving 23%? And where should that tithe go? Right, so we know that in modern times, we don't have Levites, and the temple was destroyed. So where does that leave us with tithes based on supporting Levites and worship at the temple? What, what does that look like for us today? Exactly. Jesus doesn't explicitly command us one way or the other regarding the tithe, but he does mention the tithe in the New Testament. Uh, one good example that comes up frequently is in Matthew 23, verse 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And this verse is often used as an example of Jesus upholding the idea of the tithe in New Testament times and is therefore a justification that we are held to the tithe in the same way that the Israelites were. Yeah, but I do think it's important to point out that this specific quote 
happened before the resurrection fulfilled the law, right? And the main point from Matthew 23 here is that the tithe is a rule. And as Jesus said in many contexts, following rules without changing your heart is essentially hollow. And he's really focused on justice and mercy and faithfulness. And he wants us to get our hearts right. But he does say, these you ought to have done when referring to those heart matters without neglecting the others. Yeah, exactly. And that was something I had never really considered before is the idea that everything that Jesus said happened before his resurrection. So his command to the Jews that he was speaking to in that culture makes sense to uphold the tithe in that culture and in that time because the temple did exist at the time that he was speaking and nothing about the law had changed. And so it doesn't fully give us a context for what we should be doing now post-resurrection where Christ has fulfilled and completed the law through his resurrection where does that leave us with regards to tithing? Right. And I hadn't really thought about tithing in this sense. And I think you're right that as we look through the New Testament, especially post-resurrection, we don't see a specific command around tithing. But we do see a ton about money and generosity and some of the things that we've discussed here. And that's kind of where we need to go to give more context to how tithing fits in in general for people today. But I think we fall into legalism if we're so focused on what is that percentage? What is that command? And it's kind of open-ended. There isn't a clear answer for us under the new covenant. So I think if anything, we're actually called to be more generous in spirit than those who were following commands in the Old Testament. Yeah, you're exactly right. And so I think a more accurate way to think about tithing in general for us as Christians is that it is a small subset of how we are commanded to think about and relate to money as a whole. And if tithing is the extent of how we think about how we manage God's wealth and how we serve those around us and serve the poor and how we think about possessions and, and what we spend on ourselves. then I think that we are missing the big picture when it comes to what we're called to as Christians. So I think it'd be helpful if we kind of just covered some of the broad themes that are consistent through both the Old Testament and the New Testament, including after Jesus's ministry. The first is an idea that we've talked about a number of times already, is the idea that money can be dangerous. Wealth can be dangerous for our hearts and for our faith. A good example here is in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 10 through 12. It says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. This verse really cuts kind of deep, that, that idea that you cannot be satisfied if you love money. There's no point in which you'll say, I've, I've got enough. I have enough income. I have enough net worth. I'm in the, the 1%, the 0.1%. You know, there's, there's just no level that's going to be enough. And I think we see that as kind of a cultural phenomenon going on today. And this verse just holds so true in, in what I see going on. And I've experienced this. 
I've spent years chasing the fastest strategies to become wealthier, and it's it's only recently, really diving into scripture, that I started to understand the flip side of how that can deteriorate my spiritual life. Yeah, and I think it's also important to consider the context here. This is King Solomon writing this whole book of Ecclesiastes, and he was one of the most wealthy and powerful people of that entire age. And so he had really reached the top of the top as far as what most of us would consider. And he's the one who's writing this from that perspective, that money will never satisfy and there is no enough. You will always feel unsatisfied if your heart is not in the right place. Yeah, at least on this one, I think I have to take his word for it. I don't think I need to get to the top to see for myself and and hope (laughs) I can see things differently. But uh, the next verse that really drives home the point of how money can be dangerous is is from Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It really puts the love of God and the love of money in opposition with each other. Yeah, I think that verse is so direct. There's so many places where there's that one extra layer of interpretation that's required. And this one just cuts right to the point, you cannot serve God and money. And I think it is so easy to serve money, to make all of our decisions based on income, based on money and possessions and wealth, and you know, making our career decisions based on that, making our lifestyle decisions based on that, deciding where we live based on that. And Matthew says it as clear as you could possibly say it right here that our faith will always be at odds with our love for money. Yeah, I think at times Jesus can be subtle or use parables to communicate something that will be made clear later, but this is not one of those times. This is so clear in what he's saying. He will hate one and love the other. And I'm lying to myself if I think I can love money but love God more. It's just not from Scripture to believe that I can go through life that way. And there's plenty more verses that we could get into on this whole idea that money and wealth can be dangerous. And I don't think it means that money inherently is bad, but I do think it means that we need to take a lot of caution, especially as money and wealth start to accumulate in how that affects our heart. And just to know that that is not a benign thing, that that is always going to have some pull on our heart if we're not careful and take measures to check ourselves on that. The second main theme that we see throughout is the idea that giving and generosity bring us freedom and purpose. First example here is from Proverbs 11, verse 24. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. This one I have to think about a little bit. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. And I think you have to avoid the temptation of of the prosperity gospel and saying, oh, well, if if I approach giving with an open hand, then God's going to make me rich. He's going to make me very wealthy. I think you have to take that word richer with a little more context in what's going on in the Bible. So, I think you have to look at that word richer in a different light. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. To think that if we give, then God will give us more money, I think has a very narrow view of what brings us purpose and meaning in life. And there are much more significant ways for God to bless us and to move in our hearts than 
to just grow our wealth. I do think that at times when we choose to give and sacrifice, that God does bless that action with the ability to have more to give. But I don't think that that is always the case. And I definitely don't think that that is the motivation for giving freely or being generous. Uh, And I think that specifically what it's talking about here is that as we give freely from our wealth, then God blesses our hearts and our spirit with uh, richness and blessings in relationship and contentment and a freedom from some of the things that we just talked about earlier, that pull and that desire for more, that constant discontentment with our current situation. Right. As we look through the Bible for more verses about wealth and money, we understand that the things you just mentioned are the things that God wants for us, and He wants relationship with us. So, if money could serve as an obstacle between us and having a full relationship with God, why would He heap it upon us? That seems very counterintuitive when we look at what we know about God and what we know about money from Scripture. But the other thing I wanted to point out in this short verse here is it says, another withholds what he should give. It doesn't say what he could give. It says should. And again, I think that's a very direct point that he's making. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Another verse that comes up frequently is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6-8. through 8. And It says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And I think this just really reinforces that idea that we should not inherently expect to be blessed financially when we give, even if God does choose to do that at times. Because if you look at the end here, it talks about the reward for that kind of open generosity and giving. It says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you have all sufficiency in all things so that you may abound in every good work. God blesses us in order to be able to bless others further and to fill us with his grace. We are not the end point, the end goal. And our goal is not for God to bless us. It's to be a part of what he is doing to bless others. Yeah, and I love that having all sufficiency in all things because that's kind of the antithesis to desire or the pursuit of money, the love of money, because you'll never have enough. You'll always desire more. And sufficiency is such a perfect word to represent having enough. And that's really what we're talking about here. That's the whole point of of any of this stuff that we're doing. But I also wanted to talk about for God loves a cheerful giver. That's something that is a fairly new experience for me. I've read that many times, but to experience being a cheerful giver is an entirely different thing. And I don't know that I can really put words to it, but it's it's something that has to be felt and experienced. And taking that first step, like we've talked about before, taking an action is the path to becoming a cheerful giver. You can't become a cheerful giver if you never start giving. Yeah, I've heard this verse quoted as a reason not to give many times, and the argument is always the same. It's, well, if I don't feel cheerful or excited about giving to this or that, then 
I must not be called to give and I should wait until my heart is in the right place before I take action. And I think that taking that point of view on this verse causes us to miss out on a huge part of life that God has called us into experience. And it's exactly as you said, it's through taking some initial action. And in here, it's talking about sowing. You know, it's planting seeds with the expectation of growth and movement. And it's that taking that initial step of giving and separating, you know, releasing our hands from the money that we have. That initial step is what allows God to work into our heart to create cheerfulness and contentment within us. And it's through being a part of that process and joining into God's story that we become cheerful givers. And so, if anything, I think this verse is challenging us to take action so that God can make us into cheerful givers. And I know that you have seen that in your life, and that has been my experience as well, that it is only through first taking that initial action and sowing those initial seeds with an expectation that God will make them grow, that there is any growth in our lives, that we will never come to a point where we spontaneously suddenly have a deep heart for generosity. So there's one more theme from scripture that I want to walk through, and that is the concept that there is an exchange of earthly wealth for eternal treasure. And we see this a number of times in scripture. The first one I want to look at is Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Yeah, I heard a great analogy for this verse at one point. And it was talking about the Confederacy during the Civil War. As they were getting to the end of the war, they knew that the Confederacy was going to cease to exist. And there was actually a Confederate currency at the time that was in circulation. And so the way to think about it is to think about somebody with a large amount of Confederate currency at the end of the Civil War, knowing that in a matter of weeks to months, that that would be worth absolutely nothing. What would you do in that situation? Well, the only thing that makes sense is to trade that as fast as possible for American currency so that it retains any amount of value, uh, even if you have to take a loss during that process. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around that concept now because our scope of perspective and, and what we're able to just look towards in the future is relatively small. And so the idea that all the money, wealth, or possessions that we have now are going to be completely meaningless at some point is kind of hard to wrap your mind around. But it's really exactly the same. You know, when we die, all of the money, wealth, and possessions that we have are going to be meaningless. There's that classic anecdote, you never see a hearse followed by a U-Haul. We're going to take nothing with us into eternity. And it's only the ways that we are able to use that wealth and possessions to bless others and to serve the poor and to be a part of God's story and, and the building of God's kingdom. Those are the things that we will take with us into eternity and that will have any kind of enduring impact on our souls and our spirit. Yeah, I appreciate that you shared that comparison to the currency becoming valueless, because that's something that I've never really thought about. I've never experienced it in my lifetime with American currency. I've, I've been to 
other countries where there's an exchange rate. But I've always felt like I can earn more money and it's going to be valuable and I can buy stuff. But when confronted with a verse like this, I have to think a little more about what are treasures in heaven? Where, where is my heart? Where am I putting my treasure? What am I valuing? How do I spend money? How do I manage wealth? And that, that analogy just really brings it home for me. Another verse that I wanted to talk about is Matthew chapter 19, 16 through 22. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And I learned recently that a big takeaway from this is that this young man loved money. And he had great possessions because that was something very valuable to him. And that's what caused the sorrow that Jesus said, there's an exchange here. You have to trade your love of money. And the way you do that is to sell what you possess and and give it to the poor. They're the ones who actually need it. You don't need those, you know, extra clothes, those nice carpets, whatever he had. He didn't need those things, but he loved them and he valued them above following Christ. Yeah, I think... It's important to point out that Jesus was speaking directly to this rich young ruler in this context, and that he's not speaking to a crowd or to people in general in saying that we should sell everything that we own and give to the poor. That may be the calling for some people, and so I certainly don't want to downplay that. But I think you hit it right on the head when you're saying that this is a matter of the heart. And I think it's easy for us to look at this and say, well, He was a wealthy ruler, and so obviously his heart was in the wrong place. He was so focused on the accumulation of wealth and possessions that I can see why he wouldn't be able to follow Christ. But I'm not a wealthy ruler. I have you know, a middle-class home and a middle-class income, and there's no way that I could be so focused on possessions as this man was. And I think that is a very dangerous path to go down. Because I think it's just as easy to be focused on possessions and the accumulation of wealth, even when we have nothing to our name, as it is when we have a lot of possessions and wealth. It's the desire for that, that we orient our life and our decisions around income, money, and possessions. That is uh, the danger here. And just like we read before in Matthew 6, You cannot serve God and money. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is pointing out here to this young man. I just read in a book that Rockefeller was asked, how much money is enough? And he responded, just a little bit more. And I kind of laughed when I read that, but that seems to be true regardless of income, regardless of wealth. It's it's a feeling that is, is difficult to escape from. And I think really looking to what Jesus says and what the Bible says about money and wealth is actually the antidote for that feeling that just a little bit more and and things will be okay. Because that little bit more becomes a lot more. Yeah, exactly. And I think another important thing to point out in this passage is he says, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And that's kind of what we're talking about here in this last theme is that there is some exchange of earthly wealth for eternal treasure. What does that mean? What does that look like? Imagine if this young ruler took Jesus up on this offer and, you know, Jesus explicitly commanded him personally to sell everything he had and give to the poor. What if he took him up on that? Imagine what the rest of his life would have looked like to have, I assume, 
a great deal of wealth like that and to be able to bless and serve probably a large group of people with that wealth. Think about what that would have done for his faith and his ability to trust Christ, to trust that God would provide for him and how he would have been strengthened through that action. And who knows how he accumulated this wealth, but supposedly he's relatively well connected and has you know, some degree of business smarts to have accumulated this wealth in the first place. And just the fact that he's here, I mean, earlier in the passage that we didn't read, he's asking Jesus what else he needs to do to attain righteousness. And ironically, Jesus tells him exactly what would most significantly impact his righteousness, his relationship with God, and he turns him down. That would have been such a good story for the podcast if he had taken him up on that offer. (laughs) And here we are with the rich young ruler. (laughs) Yeah. And and then the final verse, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This kind of brings it full circle. And what's really stuck out to me as you read that was to be rich in good works. And we talked about how, you know, don't don't fall into that thinking of, oh, if I just give money, more money is going to be heaped upon me, and I'm going to become rich. But rich in good works, that's that's a perfect example of, you know, the act of giving, that becoming that cheerful giver is a blessing. And that is a signal that some heart changes happened. If you start giving and you become a cheerful giver, that might be an example of becoming rich in good works. And that's the kind of stuff that I'm starting to experience with Steph. And it's really changed my outlook on life and on money. And that's the stuff I'm after. Yeah, you're 100% right on that. And once you start to taste some of those riches, I think the allure and and desire for traditional money riches and possessions really starts to lose a lot of its pull on your heart because it is so different in contrast to the kind of deep contentment and joy that comes with blessing somebody anonymously that you saw in need uh, at your church or in your community or whatever it is, or to being part of a global movement of indigenous missionaries who are radically advancing the gospel in places where nobody has heard the gospel or for providing water for hundreds of people with a relatively small amount of U.S. dollars. And as you start to experience these things more and more, it's those riches of the heart, that deep contentment and purpose and and freedom from that unsatiable desire of the kind of possessions and wealth that most of us are used to. And that's what I want for my life. And and now that Allie and I have tasted that, that is what we orient everything around is how do we get more of that? How can we be a part of that? And I think that is a universal experience for anybody who takes Jesus's offer up on that. You know, Jesus has invited all of us into that. And some choose to be a part of that and, and some miss out on a lot of that in their lives. And, and, you know, that's the whole reason we're having this conversation in the first place. Yeah. A couple more points I just wanted to make from this verse 
It says that the rich should not set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And that implies that having hope in God is not uncertain. And I can think of so many stories of people who were wealthy, who were rich, who had a large income and lost it all in the blink of an eye or over time. They spent it all. But I don't hear that many stories of people who truly have set their hopes on God losing it all because losing it all is different. What would it take to lose God? You know, that's that's not something that people just take away from you. They can't steal it. It can't rust. These are the lessons I'm learning. And the other point I wanted to make is that to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation. Those are the things that are creating a good foundation. And that term foundation is so central to what I do in financial planning. We want to help people set good foundations for the future to save up for retirement. And and a lot of it's oriented around money, ironically. But how can I focus all of my energy on setting a good financial foundation without setting a good spiritual foundation? And what if my pursuit of having a good financial foundation is at odds with growing spiritually? I just don't want to get to the end of my life and say, oh, well, I'm so glad I planned ahead because now I can retire early and I don't really have a relationship with Christ. Like, what happened? That's all I wanted. I'm sitting here in my 20s. I can acknowledge that's what I want. So what am I going to do about it? Yeah, I think you're 100% right. So uh, just to summarize here so far, we talked about the basis of the tithe being in the the Hebrew-Israelite culture the, the different types of tithes, 10%, 23%, etc. And then, you know, we're talking about this idea, what does that mean for us? Well, different scholars will argue different sides on the question, are we explicitly called to tithe as Christians or not? And I think based on what we have read and discussed here, that I would say we're not necessarily explicitly called to a 10% tithe Uh, because the way it was laid out in the Old Testament is to support the Levites and then to support the sacrificial worship at the temple. And neither of those things exist anymore. So that brings us to the big question, what do we do now? What are we called to and and how should we respond to everything that we've just discussed? Yeah, and again, I think Jesus is calling us to be much more generous and open-handed than simply following a rule And the tithe does still serve a purpose, and you and I both tithe, and we've enjoyed a lot of positive benefits from doing that personally. Plus, we're also supporting the church, which is, you know, something that we're going to be part of and a community that we value being part of. So, God is working in our hearts when we tithe, when we give, in other ways, but it really serves as an entry point for generosity in our lives. And that's certainly what it was for me. I didn't, I wasn't really generous. I never would consider myself someone who gives or looks for opportunities to give, but I did kind of latch onto this concept of like 10% to the church. I can, I can at least do that. But before long, I understood that to be kind of a baseline for giving, at least in my own experience. And that change of perspective has really kicked into motion a lot of positive heart change in in my life. And I think you bring up another important point, which is the way that Allie and I view things as well, which is that, 
you know, in the Israelite culture, the tithe supported the Levites and the temple. In our current age, we have the local church, the manifestations of, of the global church. And if you just think about it logically, the church cannot exist without the support of its members. There is no other source of income or support for the church other than the tithe and the support financially from its members. And so because of that, I do think that we are all called to support our local church, whatever that local church looks like for us financially. And I actually think, and and this is how Allie and I have approached things, that the 10% tithe from the Old Testament is a good framework to consider how we should support our local church. You know, they were able to support the Levites, the tribe of the Levites in their priestly duties, and to support all of the needs of the church, the actual animals for the sacrifice, etc., through the tithes of the people. And whether that's 10% or 23%, I think that that is a good model for us today in how we can support our local church. And so that's kind of where we've come in our personal stance on tithing is that do we think that we are explicitly called to tithe in the sense that we are sinning if we are not giving 10% of our income or possessions to the church? I don't think that that's probably true, though I could be wrong on that. But that being said, I do think that we are called to support our local churches generously. And I think that the 10% tithe is a good framework for doing that. And so that's what Allie and I do. And if your treasure is where your heart is, hopefully you want to support your local church because you're enjoying the benefit of being part of that community and having prepared sermons or whatever it looks like in your church, you know, speak into your life and provide uh, you know, not just Sunday gatherings, but maybe small groups and Bible studies and all of those things that come with being part of a church. You know, that's that's been incredibly valuable to Steph and I. But Steph and I have also committed to giving 10% of our income to our local church for the same reasons that you're talking about. It's valuable to us, and that's how to fund those activities. And we believe in the activities that are going on in the local church. So, it's a blessing to be able to support in that way. So that brings us to our, our last section. What does all this look like for somebody with a financial finish line? And, you know, just a recap, basically, what is a financial finish line in the first place? As our income increases, our spending and our needs tend to increase with it as well. And so a finish line is a point that you define where you say, any income that God blesses me with above this amount I'm not going to use on myself and my family. I'm going to use it as God directs me to support others, to support ministry, and to support the building of God's kingdom. And you and I both have finish lines. So what is, how does tithing fit into that? What does it look like? Why don't you just start off by you know, explaining what that looks like for you and Steph? So when we first set our finish line, our income was actually lower than our finish line. But we didn't want to stop tithing at that point, so we continued tithing and further reduced our lifestyle to reflect that. And then uh, over the course of 2020, our income actually rose above our finish line. So we had some margin between our finish line and our actual take-home pay. 
but we had kind of three categories that we had to distribute that margin across, and that was aggressively paying off some remaining debt with student loans and giving and also retirement savings. So we weren't really willing to stop giving altogether just to pay off debt faster. And we weren't willing to stop saving for retirement. It's just kind of in my DNA as a financial planner. So we have continued to adjust our lifestyle downward to below our finish line so that we can do all three of those things. And within that giving category is is the tithe. That hasn't changed. But how about you? How do you handle the tithe within your life? Yeah, so we're in a slightly different situation. We set a finish line a couple of years ago, and as our income has increased, we are also, our income is also above our finish line, and so we have that margin as well. And that margin is actually big enough for us that our whole tithe fits into that margin, as well as the, the things that you mentioned, like retirement savings, et cetera. And so our lifestyle spending is basically at our finish line, and we're able to do our tithe and additional giving from that margin, as well as putting towards retirement. So as our income continues to go up in the future, and in a year from now, it's going to go up significantly, that margin is just going to increase, our lifestyle is going to stay the same, and we'll continue to tithe, and we'll continue to increase our additional giving outside of the tithe as well. So in summary, for somebody looking into a finish line or somebody who has set a finish line and trying to figure out how tithing fits into things, you know, I think that's a personal decision on how you kind of situate that in your own life. But we can give some general recommendations and just a framework to think about it. As we've both shared, I think the 10% tithe is a helpful framework for what we should be giving specifically to our local churches to support them because there is no other way that our local church is sustained. And then additional giving can come beyond that 10%, but we do have an obligation to our local churches. Uh, at least that's the way that you and I have come to view things. Uh, and then for people with a finish line, if you are not at your finish line yet, or your margin between your finish line and your income is relatively small, then we have both felt personally that we are still called to tithe and support our local churches and have just adjusted our lifestyles lower than our finish lines to accommodate that. And then for those who have a significant margin above their finish line, then that tithe I think is completely reasonable to take out of that margin itself and to give to the local church as well as other things like additional giving uh, to other ministries or uh, saving for retirement, the other kind of things that come from that margin. Again, this is all personal conviction. Uh, we just offer this as a as a helpful framework to get the conversation started and to give any of you a way to kind of think about things. Well, that's about all we have for today. Uh, before we finish up, I did want to get to our manager minute for the day. You know, we talk all the time about the fact that everything we own belongs to God and rather giving back to God from our wealth we're more like managers who steward over God's wealth. It already all belongs to him. And so our manager minute is just a quick idea for how you can steward that wealth to support your community and God's kingdom. Today's manager minute is about helping families with young kids. If you know a family that could use a hand, especially one with several little kids at home, consider offering to cover a babysitter for the night 
Or, of course, you could offer to babysit for free yourself. Getting a night out of the house can go a long way for young parents, especially those going through big transitions or difficult times. And that's our minute for today. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line or the finish line movement or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Send us any questions you have, and we'll answer them on one of our future episodes. Finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 14. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time.